Section 6 of Great Pirate Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Great Pirate Stories by Various. Edited by Joseph Louis French. Section 6 Barbarossa, King of the Corsairs. Barbarossa, King of the Corsairs. From Sea Wolves of the Mediterranean by E. Hamilton Curry, R.N. At the coming of spring, Barbarossa was at sea again with thirty-two ships, ready for any eventuality, his crews aflame with ardour for revenge against those by whom they had been so roughly handled. He chose for the scene of operations a place on the coast of Majorca some fifteen miles from Palma. From here he commanded the route of the Spaniards from their country to the African coast and it was against this nation that he felt a great bitterness owing to recent events. Eagerly did the corsair and his men watch for the Spanish ships, the heavier vessels lying at anchor, but the light swift galleys ranging and questing afar so that none might be missed. Very soon the vigilance of the Moslems was rewarded by the capture of a number of vessels sent by Bernard de Mendoza, laden with Turkish and Moorish slaves, destined to be utilized as rowers in the Spanish galleys. These men were hailed as a welcome reinforcement, and joyfully joined the forces of Hayredin when he moved on Menorca, captured the castle by a surprise assault, raided the surrounding country, and captured 5,700 Christians, amongst whom were 800 men who had been wounded in the attack on Tunis. All these unfortunates were sent to refill the banyo of Algiers. This private war of revenge was, however, destined soon to come to an end, Suleiman the Magnificent in this year became involved in disputes with the Venetian Republic and recalled that veritable man of the sea as Barbarossa had been described by Ibrahim to Constantinople. In this city by the sea there had taken place a tragedy which although it only involved the death of a single man was nevertheless far-reaching in its consequences for the man was none other than that great statesman Ibrahim, Grand Vizier, and the only trusted counsellor of the Padishah. He, who had been originally a slave, had risen step by step in the favour of his master, until he arrived at the giddy eminence which he occupied at the time of his death. It is a somewhat curious commentary on the essentially democratic status of an autocracy that a man could thus rise to a position second only to that of the autocrat himself, and in all probability wielding quite as much power. Ibrahim had for years been treated by Suleiman more as a brother than as a dependent, which in spite of his grand viziership he was in fact. They lived in the very closest communion, taking their meals together and even sleeping in the same room. Suleiman, a man of high intelligence himself, and a ruler who kept in touch with all the happenings which arose in his immense dominions, desiring always to have at hand the man whom he loved. From whom? With his amazing grip of political problems and endless fertility of resource, he was certain of sympathy and sound advice. But in an oriental despotism there are other forces at work besides those of la haute politique, and Ibrahim had one deadly enemy who was sworn to compass his destruction. The Sultana Roxolana was the light of the harem of the Grand Turk. This supremely beautiful woman, originally a Russian slave, was the object of the most passionate devotion on the part of Suleiman. But she was as ambitious as she was lovely, and brooked no rival in the affections of Suleiman, be that person man, woman, or child. 
In her hands the master of millions, the despot whose nod was death, became a submissive slave. The undisciplined passions of this headstrong woman swept aside from her path all those whom she suspected of sharing her influence, in no matter how remote a fashion. At her dictation had Suleiman caused to be murdered his son Mustafa, a youth of the brightest promise, because in his intelligence and his winning ways he threatened to eclipse Selim, the son of Roxalana herself. This woman possessed a strong natural intelligence, albeit she was totally uneducated. She saw and knew that Ibrahim was all-powerful with her lover, and this roused her jealousy to fever heat. She was not possessed of a cool judgment, which would have told her that Ibrahim was a statesman dealing with the external affairs of the sublime port, and that with her, and with her affairs, he neither desired, nor had he the power to interfere. What, however, the Sultana did know was that in these same affairs of state, her opinion was dust in the balance, when weighed against that of the Grand Vizier. Suleiman had that true attribute of supreme greatness, the unerring aptitude for the choice of the right man. He had picked out Ibrahim from among his immense entourage, and never once had he regretted his choice. As time went on, and the intellect and power of the man became more and more revealed to his master, that sovereign left in his hands even such matters as despots are apt to guard most jealously. We have seen how, in spite of the murmurings of the whole of his capital, and the almost insubordinate attitude of his navy, he had persevered in the appointment of Herodin Barbarossa, because the judgment of Ibrahim was in favor of its being carried out. This, to Roxalana, was gall and wormwood. Well, she knew that, as long as the Grand Vizier lived, her sovereignty was at best but a divided one. There was a point at which her blandishment stopped short. This was when she found that her opinion did not coincide with that of the minister. She was, as we have seen in instance of her son, not a woman to stick at trifles, and she decided that Ibrahim must die. There could be no hole and corner business about this. He must die, and when his murder had been accomplished, she would boldly avow to her lover what she had done, and take the consequences, believing in her power over him to come scatheless out of the adventure. In those days, when human life was so cheap, she might have asked for the death of almost anyone, and her whim would have been gratified by a lover who had not hesitated to put to death his own son at her dictation. But with Ibrahim it was another matter. He was the familiar of the sultan his alter ego, in fact. It says much for the nerve of the sultana that she dared so greatly on this memorable and lamentable occasion. On March the 5th, 1536, Ibrahim went to the royal seraglio, and following his ancient custom, was admitted to the table of his master, sleeping after the meal at his side. At least so it was supposed, but none knew, save those engaged in the murder, what passed on that fatal night. The next day, his dead body lay in the house of the sultan. Across the floor of Jasper, in that palace which was a fitting residence, for one rightly known as the Magnificent, the blood of Ibrahim flowed to the feet of Roxalana. The disordered clothing, the terrible expression of the face of the dead man, the gaping wounds which he had received, bore witness that there had taken place a grim struggle before that iron frame and splendid intellect had been leveled with the dust. This much leaked out afterwards, as such things will leak out, 
And then the sultana took Suleiman into her chamber and gazed up into his eyes. The man was stunned by the immensity of the calamity which had befallen him and his kingdom, but his manhood availed him not against the wiles of this Circe. Ibrahim had been foully done to death in his own palace, and this woman clinging so lovingly round his neck now was the murderess. The heart's blood of his best friend was coagulating on the threshold of his own apartment when he forgave her by whom his murder had been accomplished. This was the vengeance of Roxalana, and who shall say that it was not complete? The Ottoman Empire was the poorer by the loss of its greatest man. The jealousy of the Sultana was assuaged. The despot who had permitted this unavenged murder was still on the throne, thralled to the woman who had first murdered his son and then his friend and minister. But the deed carried with it the evil consequences which were only too likely to occur when so capable a head of the state was removed at so critical a time. Renewed strife was in the air, and endless squabbles between Venice and the port were taking place. With these we have no concern, but in addition to other complaints, there were loud and continuous ones concerning the corsairs. Venice, the bride of the sea, had neither rest nor peace. The pirates swarmed in Corfu, in Zanti, in Candia, in Cephalonia, and the plunder and murder of the subjects of the Republic was the theme of the perpetual representations to the Sultan. The balance of advantage in this guerrilla warfare was with the corsairs until Girolamo Canale, a Venetian captain, seized one of the Muslim leaders known as the young Moor of Alexandria. The victory of Canale was somewhat an important one, as he captured the galley of the young Moor and four others. Two more were sunk, and three hundred Janizaries and one thousand slaves fell into the hands of the Venetian commander. There being an absence of nice feeling on the part of the Venetians, the Janizaries were at once beheaded to a man. The whole story is an illustration of the extraordinary relations existing among the Mediterranean states at this time. Suleiman the Magnificent, Sultan of Turkey, had lent three hundred of his Janizaries, his own picked troops, to assist the corsairs in their depredations on Venetian commerce. Having done this, and the Janizaries having been caught, and summarily and rightly put to death as pirates, the Sultan, as soon as he heard of what had occurred, sent an ambassador, Juan Yonis Bay, to Venice, to demand satisfaction for the insult passed upon him by the beheading of his own soldiers turned pirates. The conclusion of the affair was that the Venetians released the young Moor of Alexandria as soon as he was cured of the eight wounds which he had received in the conflict, and sent him back to Africa with such of his galleys as were left. There was one rather comical incident in connection with this affair, which was that when Yonis Bay was on his way from Constantinople to Venice, he was chased by a Venetian fleet, under the command of the Count Grandanico, and driven ashore. The Count was profuse in his apologies when he discovered that he had been chasing a live ambassador, but the occurrence so exasperated Suleiman that he increased his demands in consequence. Barbarossa, who had spent his time harrying the Spaniards at sea ever since the fall of Tunis, was shortly to appear on the scene again. He received orders from the Sultan, and came as fast as a favouring wind would bring him. Herodin had been doing well in the matter of slaves and plunder, but he knew that, with the backing of the Grand Turk, he would once again be in command of a fleet in which he might repeat his triumph of past years, and prove himself once more 
the indispensable man of the sea. Soon after his arrival his ambitions were gratified, and he found himself with a fleet of one hundred ships. Since the death of Ibrahim and the incident which terminated with the dispatch of Yonis Bay to Venice, the relations between the Grand Turk and the Venetian Republic had become steadily worse, and at last the Sultan declared war. On May the 7th, 1537, Suleiman, accompanied by his two sons, Selim and Mohammed, left Constantinople. With the campaign conducted by the Sultan, we are not concerned here. It was directed against the Ionian Islands, which had been in the possession of Venice since 1401. On August the 18th, Suleiman laid siege to Corfu, and was disastrously beaten, re-embarking his men on September the 7th, after losing thousands in a fruitless attack on the fortress. He returned to Constantinople utterly discomfited. It was the seventh campaign which the Sultan had conducted in person, but the first in which the ever-faithful Ibrahim had not been by his side. This defeat at the hands of the Venetians was not, however, the only humiliation which he was destined to experience in this disastrous year. For once again Doria, that scourge of the Moslem, was loose upon the seas, and was making his presence felt in the immediate neighborhood of Corfu, where the Turks had been defeated. On July the 17th, Andrea had left the port of Messina with 25 galleys, had captured 10 richly laden Turkish ships, gutted and burned them. Herodin was at sea at the time, but the great rivals were not destined to meet on this occasion. Instead of Barbarossa, Andrea fell in with Ali Cebelli, the lieutenant of San Jack Bay of Gallipoli. On July the 22nd, the Genoese admiral and the Turkish commander from the Dardanelles met to the southward of Corfu, off the small island of Paxo, and a smart action ensued. It ended in the defeat of Ali Cebelli, whose galleys were captured and towed by Doria into Paxo. That veteran fighter was himself in the thickest of the fray, and conspicuous in his crimson doublet, had been an object of attention to the marksmen of Cebelli during the entire action. In spite of the receipt of a severe wound in the knee, the admiral refused to go below until victory was assured. He was surrounded at this time by a devoted band of nobles, sworn to defend the person of their admiral or to die in his defense. His portrait has been sketched for us at this time by the Dominican friar Padre Alberto Guglielmoto, author of La Guerra del Pirati e la Marina Pontifica dal 1500 al 1560. The description runs thus. Andrea Doria was of lofty stature, his face oval in shape, forehead broad and commanding. His neck was powerful, his hair short, his beard long and fan-shaped. His lips were thin, his eyes bright and piercing. Once again had he defeated an officer of the Grand Turk, and it may be remarked that Ibrahim was probably quite right in the estimation, or rather in the lack of estimation, in which he held the sea officers of his master, as they seemed to have been deficient in every quality save that of personal valour, and in their encounters with Doria and the knights were almost invariably worsted. For the sake of Islam, for the prestige of the Moslem arms at sea, it was time that Barbarossa should take matters in hand once more. The autumn of this year, 1537, proved that the old sea-wolf had lost none of his cunning, that his followers were as terrible as ever. What did it seem to matter that Venetian and Catalan, Genoese and Frenchman, 
and delusion and the dwellers in the archipelago were all banded together in league against this common foe? Did not the redoubtable Andrea range the seas in vain? And were not all the efforts of the Knights of St. John futile, when the son of the renegado from Mitalina and his Christian wife put forth from the Golden Horn? What was the magic of this man, it was asked despairingly, that none seemed able to prevail against him? Had it not been currently reported that Carlos Quinto, the great emperor, had driven him forth from Tunis, a hunted fugitive, broken and penniless, with never a galley left, without one ducat in his pocket? Was he so different, then, from all the rest of mankind, that his followers would stick to him in evil report, as well as in the height of his prosperity? Men swore and women crossed themselves at the mention of his name. Terrible as an army with banners indeed was Hayredin, in this eventful summer. Things had gone badly with the crescent flag. The Padishah was unapproachable in his palace. Brooding perchance on that might have been, had he not sold his honour and the life of his only friend, to gratify the malice of a she-devil. Those in attendance on the sultan trembled, for the humour of the despot was black indeed. But the veritable man of the sea was in some sort to console him for that which he had lost, as never in his own history, and there was none else with which it could be compared, had the corsair king made so fruitful a raid. He ravaged the coasts of the Adriatic and the islands of the archipelago, sweeping in slaves by the thousand, and by the end of the year he had collected eighteen thousand in the arsenal at Stamboul. Great was the jubilation in Constantinople, when the Admiralissimo himself returned from his last expedition against the infidel. Stilled were the voices which hinted disaffection. Who among them all could bring back four hundred thousand pieces of gold? What mariner could offer to the Grand Turk such varied and magnificent presents? Upon his arrival, Barbarossa asked permission to kiss the threshold of the palace of the Sultan, which boon being graciously accorded to him, he made his triumphal entry. Two hundred captives clad in scarlet robes carried cups of gold and flasks of silver. Behind them came thirty others, each staggering under an enormous purse of sequins. Yet another two hundred brought collars of precious stones, or bales of the choicest goods, and a further two hundred were laden with sacks of small coin. Certainly if Suleiman the Magnificent had lost a grand vizier, he had succeeded in finding an admiral. All through the earlier months of 1538, the dockyards of Constantinople hummed with a furious activity, for Suleiman had decreed that the maritime campaign of this year was to begin with no less than 150 ships. His admiral, however, did not agree with this decision. To the viziers he raged and stormed. Listen, he said, O men of the land who understand naught of the happenings of the sea. By this time Saleh Reish must have quitted Alexandria, convoying to the Bosphorus twenty sail filled with the richest merchandise. Should he fall in with the accursed Genoese Doria, where then will be Saleh Reish and his galleys and his convoy? I will tell you, the ships in Genoa, the galleys burned, Saleh Reish and all his mariners chained to the rower's bench. The viziers trembled as men did when Barbarossa stormed and turned upon them those terrible eyes which knew neither fear nor pity. We be but men, they answered, and our lord the sultan has so ordained it. I have forty galleys, replied the corsair. You have forty more. With these I will take the sea. But mark you, he continued, softening somewhat, 
You do right to fear the displeasure of the Sultan, and I also have no wish to encounter it. But vessels raised and equipped in a hurry will be of small use to me. In the name of Allah the Compassionate and His Holy Prophet, give me my eighty galleys and let me go. In Herodin Barbarossa, sound strategical instinct went hand in hand with the desperate valor of the corsair. To dally in the golden horn, while so rich a prey was at sea to be picked up by his Christian foes, was altogether opposed to his instincts. Never to throw away a chance in the game of life had ever been his guiding principle. Suleiman, great man as he undoubtedly was, had not the adamantine hardness of character which enabled his admiral to risk all on the hazards of the moment. Or possibly the Grand Turk was deficient in that clearness of strategical instinct which never, in any circumstances, foregoes a present advantage for something which may turn out well in a problematical future. Suleiman, sore, sullen, and unapproachable, dwelt in his palace brooding over the misfortunes which had been his lot since the death of Ibrahim. Barbarossa, who so recently had lost practically all that he possessed, and who had reached an age at which most men have no hopes for the future, was as clear in intellect, as undaunted in spirit as if he had been half a century younger. To be even once more with those by whom he had been defeated and dispossessed was the only thing now in his mind. The capture of Saleh and his convoy would be a triumph of which he could not bear to think. Further, it would add to the demoralization of the sea forces of the Sultan, which were sadly in need of some striking success after the defeats which had so recently been their portion. The Sultan had decided that 150 ships were necessary. His admiral thought otherwise. There was too much at stake for him to dally at Constantinople. His fiery energy swept all before it, and in the end he had his way. On June the 7th, 1538, he finally triumphed over the hesitations of the viziers, and put to sea with 80 sail. The Sultan, from his kiosk, the windows of which opened on the Bosphorus, counted the ships. Only eighty sail, is that all? he asked. The trembling viziers prostrated themselves before him. Oh, our lord, the Padishah, they cried. Saleh comes from Alexandria with the rich convoy. Somewhere lurking is Andrea Doria, the accursed. It was necessary, O oh, magnificent, to send succor. There was a pause in which the hearts of men beat as do those who know not but that the next moment may be their last on earth. The Sultan stared from his window at the retreating ships, in a silence like the silence of the grave. At last he turned. So be it, he answered briefly. But see to it that reinforcements do not lag upon the road. If there had been activity in the dockyards before, it was as nothing to the strenuous work that was to be done henceforward. Before starting on this expedition, Herodin had made an innovation in the manning of some of the most powerful of his galleys, which was of the utmost importance and which was to add enormously to the success of his future maritime enterprises. The custom had always been that the Ottoman galleys had been rowed by Christians, captured and enslaved. Of course the converse was true in the galleys of their foes. There were, for the size of the vessels, an enormous number of men carried in the galleys of the 16th century, and an average craft of this description would have on board some 400 men. Of these, however, the proportion would be 250 slaves to 150 fighting men. That which Herodin now insisted upon was that a certain proportion of his most powerful units should be rowed by Moslem fighting men, so that on the day of battle 
the oarsmen could join in the fray instead of remaining chained to their benches as was the custom with the slaves it is however an extraordinary testimony to the influence which the corsair had attained in constantinople that he had been able to effect this change in the composition of some of his crews it must have been done with the active cooperation of the sultan as no authority less potent than that of the sovereign himself could have induced free men to undertake the terrible toil of rower in a galley this was reserved for the unfortunate slave on either side owing to the intolerable hardship of the life and results in the pace at which a galley proceeded through the water were usually obtained by an unsparing use of the lash on the naked bodies of the rowers this human material was used up in the most prodigal manner possible as those in command had not the inducement of treating the rowers well from that economic standpoint which causes a man to so use his beast of burden as to get the best work from him in the galley when a slave would row no more he was flung overboard and another was put in his place the admiral however even when backed by the padishah could not man a large fleet of galleys with moslem rowers and as there was a shortage in the matter of propelling power his first business was to collect slaves and for this purpose he visited the islands of the archipelago the lot of the unhappy inhabitants of these was indeed a hard one they were nearer to the seat of the moslem power than any other christians they were in those days totally unable to resist an attack in force and in consequence were swept off in their thousands seven islands cover the entrance to the gulf of olo the nearest to the coast is skiathos which is also the most important it was defended by a castle built upon a rock this castle was attacked by barbarossa who bombarded it for six days carried it by assault and massacred the garrison he spared the lives of the inhabitants of the island and by this means secured three thousand four hundred rowers for his galleys he had to provide motor power for the reinforcements which he expected in july he was reinforced from constantinople by ninety galleys while from egypt came saleh Reis, who had succeeded in avoiding the terrible doria with twenty more the fleet was thus complete end of section six recording by marion martin